0: Hello and welcome to the Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our last week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Kurenkov. I finished my PhD focused on AI at Stanford last year, and I now work at a generative AI startup.
1: And I'm your other host, Jeremy Harris. I'm the co-founder of a company called Gladstone AI, an AI safety national security company. Um, and actually, you know, I'll I'll just mention this real quick. Uh, we are currently looking for help with business development in uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. So if you are interested in that kind of thing, uh, hit me up. Uh, you can you can send us an email at hello at gladstone.ai. Just, uh, one quick thing I'll mention there, we are literally the first company in history to deploy a GPT-4 powered application to the U.S. Department of Defense. And we have training products that are currently training the top leaders at the U.S. Department of Defense and Uh, as well have been used to do briefings for like cabinet secretaries and uh, folks at Homeland Security and the State Department, all that jazz. So if you want to make a big impact uh, in AI safety, AI national security stuff, AGI, that's all our kind of, all our focus. uh, Yeah, hit me up. Would love to, would love to chat. Anyway, that's my, that's my pitch. How would I do? Did
0: I do good? That's, uh, that's good. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty exciting. And uh, as always, <laughs> we'll include a link to that email and any other stuff in the uh, episode description. So if that's intriguing, do feel free to follow up. Also, as always, feel free to email just a podcast. with any thoughts or suggestions, contact at lastweekin.ai. We always love to hear your feedback. Uh, Any pointers to stories you think we missed, sometimes we do pick those up or any corrections, we try and include that. This is going to be a bit of a quicker episode. We kind of have to get through it quick. So we are going to just go ahead and jump in. Starting with the tools and apps section, the first story is one of the major news stories of this week, which is that Google has released Gemini, its AI-driven chatbot and voice assistant. This is really kind of a rebrand of everything Google has released so far. So BARD and Google Google Assistant are pretty much gone or replaced, seemingly, by this new smartphone app, Gemini. And Gemini is essentially very much like ChatGPT. So it's a chatbot. You can talk to it. It can generate images. It can output Whatever ChatGPT does for you, like writing emails uh, or writing code, etc., etc., I have not played around with it yet. But I have read various people's takes, and with general consensus, seems to be that it is about ChatGPT quality. You know, there's some cases where it doesn't do so hot, some pieces where it does, but in general, it seems to be about on par. So I guess a pretty big day for Google.
1: Yeah, definitely. And this is, as you said, like part of that Bard rebrand. We've known a lot about Gemini actually for a while now. This is, I think, it's the first time I remember personally knowing about the benchmarks, this benchmark performance of these models before they were actually sort of like publicly released. So, you know, usually with like GPT 4. The you know the thing gets released and then we learn about the benchmarks all at the same time and the technical report comes out, um, but we've known for months now that that um, the, that uh, Gemini was coming, uh, and we knew that in one instance it was hitting like the state of the art in 30 out of 32 benchmarks that uh, that they were tracking, and interestingly uh, that was 10 out of 12 of the popular text and reasoning benchmarks that they tried, but nine out of nine and six out of six of the image and video understanding benchmarks that they tested, and five out of five of the the speech recognition benchmarks. So on the multimodality side, it seems to be like really especially strong, let's say, particularly compared to the likes of GPT-4, which for now it's competing with. But I think one of the most interesting consequences of the Gemini release now, or the Gemini Ultra release, because that's really what's new here. We've had the Gemini Pro and Gemini Nano out before. But with Ultra, we're really now, you know, OpenAI, the pressure is on them to accelerate their timeline on release of GPT-5. You know, if they want to maintain their, their monopoly, which is the only thing that allows them to defend their higher, not their higher price point, but their margin, they're going to have to come out with the next version. We know GPT-5 has been trained already, so I think this is only going to accelerate that timeline and the race continues.
0: You can pay for a more powerful version of Gemini Advanced, which is powered by their Ultra Gemini, and that's for uh, Twenty dollars a month, so pretty much the same monthly subscription as you have with ChatGPT for all their like Pro tier features. Although you do get a two month trial from Google, so uh, you know probably a lot of people are going to start trying out yeah. this as a alternative to ChatGPT subscription service. So as you say, I think does result in some uh, kind of pressure on OpenAI from here. And just a a little bit more detail, I think qualitatively, uh, it has a slightly different sort of tone to it. It seems to be a little bit more friendly and Assistant Mm E than ChatGPT, less of a neutral voice. And one final caveat is this is released now to English speakers in more than 115 countries and territories, so not yet, I guess, anywhere Google is. But if you're an English speaker, you can go ahead and download it and try it out now. And onto the other update to a chatbot that we got this week. <laughs> the next story is Copilot gets a big redesign and a new way to edit your AI-generated images. So Microsoft has its own ChatGPT-type thing called Copilot that has been continually updated and improved over time. And now there is a redesign for it, kind of come upon an anniversary of sorts for uh, Microsoft's efforts in the area. So yeah, it's nicer, cleaner. There's also been an update to the mobile version. And there's a new feature called Designer, which allows you to edit generated content uh, by highlighting uh, different areas of the image, blurring backgrounds, adding unique filters, uh, et etc. Et so yeah, another instance of the kind of, I guess, Chatbot tool scape really maturing in a sense. And now you have a few options for something like ChatGPT that you can choose from. Yeah. One of the things I
1: always find interesting in these new kind of reskins or launches or whatever is looking at what are the things that they're making available for free versus what are they charging for and how much are they charging for them. I think it's fair to say, you know, at the time. You know, Andre, you and I started to record this podcast together like about actually, you know, about a year ago. Um, it was really green. Like it wasn't clear uh, how much do you charge, for example, for something like ChatGPT? Well, we now know the answer. It's about 20 bucks a month, right? Um, but then you know, this this next generation, especially when we go multimodal like this tool is, you start to ask, you know, what what are the freemium offerings? Like what do you get for free? What do you have to pay for? And in this case, you know, designer is free for everybody to try out, but you need a subscription to Copilot Pro to get access to some extra tools. And so what are those tools? What is behind the paywall, at least for now? What are, what are they testing? Well, they're testing out putting behind a paywall the ability to resize generated content and regenerate images into either a square or landscape orientation. And I just I find that interesting. Like, you know, how would you how would you kind of split the baby and decide like okay, that you know, that's what we're going to do. That they must be seeing something in the in the use cases on the back end that that orients them in that direction. But anyway, so something to watch. I, I wonder if this will become again another pretty standard dividing line when you look at these sorts of offerings. Um, but right now, yeah, it's all part of Microsoft's obviously like kind of holistic integration of AI into their products and uh, trying to draw it, you know, draw people into Copilot Pro as much as possible. It's an interesting long term play, and it's consistent with their like their big focus on you know commoditize the complement, make the software the thing that you pay for or charge for. And Copilot is you know, a big part of that right now.
0: Yeah. If you look at their description of Copilot versus Copilot Pro, uh, it, it's kind of interesting. It says, access GPT-4 and GPT-4 turbo during non-peak times. For yeah. Copilot versus Copilot, probably get Priority access to GPT four and GPT four turbo during peak times. So essentially there's this kind of like hidden aspect there where secretly the results you get are from an inferior AI model, unless the GPUs are just happen to be free, no one's using them, then you would yep. get the good results, even if you're not paying. So uh yeah, it's it's kind of Seems to be the standard now where you pay to ensure the best results and to have more of a budget, for instance, for creating more images or editing them various ways, uh, kind of across the board, really. And moving on to our lightning round, we open with Arc Search's AI responses launched
1: as an unfettered experience with no guardrails. So this is a, a story. I think we first covered this maybe a couple of weeks ago. So so there's this company called the Browser Company, and they have a browser called Arc, and it's essentially like the focus here is on you know kind of productivity enthusiasts. Uh, just it's it's you know a clever way of like organizing your browser experience to make you more productive. And their new iOS version comes with this Browse for Me feature. Essentially, this is a, an AI agent where you give the agent like a, a simple query that you, you know, want it to look up on the internet for you. Say you want to like look for the, the Gladiator 2 trailer. And it will identify, in that case, like the specific YouTube video. So it won't show you a whole bunch of options. It'll just kind of go through the internet, figure out which links make the most sense and surface those, um, and then do kind of more... Yeah, more more complex tasks than that for you as well. Do some some research, that sort of thing. Um, it's a really interesting idea, and they rolled this out, I think, earlier this week. Except we're only now finding out actually they, they had no guardrails in place, right? So we're used to like Chat GPT, you know, and ask it how to make a bomb, it'll say politely no, like as a large language model trained by OpenAI, it won't help you do that. Um, this model does not or did not have any guardrails. So there's a journalist here who tried really like for everything under the sun, there were some unsavory things that apparently didn't include in the article. But for example, you know, asked for help hiding a a body and got some responses, some like, yeah, decent-ish things, ultimately kind of weird answers, like abandoned buildings or beaches with secluded areas, that sort of thing. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, it it, it really was over-helpful. So now, Arc is kind of coming out and saying, "Oh, mea culpa," you know, like we we screwed up here. We're going to put some safeguards in place. Seems like as of the time of writing this article, they still were not. Um, but I, you know, I, I think first of all, the this whole Arc situation, I think, is fascinating from a business standpoint. You know, what happens to search engines when AI powered agents are doing the searching, and therefore ad revenue isn't a thing in that sense? Like, do we see continued use of search engine APIs? Like, do they keep allowing that? Um, but then separately, like, holy crap, there are no guardrails. Like, this is actually still a thing that we're doing. Like, we're, we're launching services with no guardrails. Kind of interesting. Um, so, anyway, uh, a cool article worth, worth digging around uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing.
0: This article highlights quite a bit about this. It's an interesting read. I think I also liked that it highlighted uh, misinformation and hallucination regarding, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, medical advice. So, that is an issue here as well so yeah interesting launch fast and kind of have some of these potential negative or problematic uh cases and i guess i did promise updates to come to probably address some of the let's say things that probably they should limit or in some ways kind of prevent on to the next story brilliant labs frame glasses serve as a multimodal ai assistant So this is another announcement of a new category of device, I guess, which is this wearable AI thing. Uh, you could say. So we've had a few of these already. We've had the human AI pin, which was a little pin that has a projector, and you can talk to it. Meta has its smart glasses that have AI integrated. You can speak to it. It can do translation and various things. And now there is a new company in the fray called Brilliant Labs that is launching or announcing Frame which has an integrated multimodal AI assistant. So pretty similar in concepts to what Meta has in terms of being glasses that have a camera, and you can have various AI assistants by speaking to it. And it can also play around with images you get from a model. So to me, interesting to highlight just yet another example of another company trying to see if there is a new type of device that brings AI to you Via something sort of wearable.
1: Yeah, it's it's always an interesting question as to whether it's the hardware itself, like the form factor of the of the device, that is the limiting thing, or the software ecosystem around it. You know, obviously, famously, Google Glass flopped when it it first launched. Different era now, like generative AI, and, and in particular, as you said, multimodal AI makes certain things much more possible and usable. Uh, interesting to note, you know, these glasses they look like eyeglasses, like they they do not. Um, they're as thick as ordinary glasses they, they show a, a photo of them in the articles kind of interesting um so we'll see you know we'll see if that really does it i mean people don't want to feel necessarily like they're walking around with a thing on their face um i'm trying to remember what happened with uh with snaps uh famous sunglasses there i, I don't see those around a ton but, but that might just mean that I'm you know, now into my 30s. So that's more of a thing. But um, interesting roster of investors, too, uh, that, that they list here. A whole bunch of really impressive people, including um, uh, Brendan Erb, who's so the f- co-founder of Oculus. Um, Eric uh, Migkowski, who, uh, yes, is the founder of Pebble, as they noted in the article, also uh, a partner at Y Combinator. So you know, really uh, early stage focus there. And, and certainly Eric is... Uh, very knowledgeable hardware guy from what I remember of him at YC. Um, and uh, anyway, other, other core team members at Oculus. So really, really well-backed, well-advised, and uh, an interesting one to watch. You know, there are a lot of, as you said, a lot of products like this hitting the, the shelves. Obviously, Rabbit is another kind of, you know, vaguely analogous. It's kind of a portable device, not on your face or anything. But we're seeing more and more of the hardware meeting the software when it comes to AI.
0: Next story, Stability AI launches SVD 1.1, a diffusion model for more consistent AI videos. So this is about an update to stable video diffusion, moving it to 1.1 away from 1.0. I think we covered 1.0 just a couple of weeks ago. And this is pretty much just making it so you can have more consistent video generations. Uh, Just an improvement, really, but does highlight, I think, a movement in... Uh, video generation becoming more commonplace and, and I think making pretty rapid progress now. And probably for the rest of this year, we'll see a lot of uh, text to video getting better, getting commercialized, maybe starting to be used for various applications.
1: Next, we have OpenAI launches ChatGPT app for Apple Vision Pro, and actually, this is to the story that uh, earlier we we're talking about with those those glasses. Um, so, Apple Vision Pro, uh, this is an augmented reality headset, right? That Apple launched. This was, uh, I guess, now last month. We talked about it back when it launched, and now they're looking at integrating GPT four Turbo uh, with this. A headset, so basically, it will allow you to like chat with you know ChatGPT, if you will, using images that are collected by the headset. headset, sorry. So it's this very kind of seamless uh, integration. There's audi- also an audio interface, so you can dictate to the headset. Uh, so now you can sort of talk to your AI all day long. Um, it's uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's an interesting development. It's also um, another app. Uh, ChatGPT becomes. Uh, One of of many apps uh, on this platform, there are 600 new apps that have been built uh, for Vision OS, which is the operating system that powers Apple Vision Pro. and uh, and those those apps, it's interesting. They can take advantage of a couple of different features that are built into this ecosystem. There's a, a thing called Optic ID, which is biometric authentication. Uh, it's, it uses eye tracking and, and like iris iris recognition. Uh, so pretty cool. Spatial audio, so it it creates a this creates a, like a realistic um, directional audio effects. So you can you know hear stuff that's coming from the right direction, and then Vision Kit. Which allows people to uh, create apps that can actually, you know, be multimodal—you know, take in images and uh, and audio and all that. We don't know if ChatGPT will actually be using these, uh, so it's not necessarily clear exactly how it's integrating at the uh, software level with the um, uh, with, with Apple Vision Pro. But it looks like—I I mean, I would guess it—it'll be using some of these ready-made handles. Um, yeah. So another instance of multimodality, really, you know, hitting the mainstream and uh, with hardware to support it.
0: And uh, kind of reminds me, I mean, we we are not going to Apple Vision Pro releasing as a story since it's not exactly AI. But at the same time, I'm reminded that kind of behind the scenes, there's no language models, but the spatial computing, as Apple likes to call it, yeah. of tracking your 3D space, being able to understand where you are uh, and, and how you move, all of that is AI. So really, Apple Vision Pro is a pretty impressive example of vision AI being able to understand the space around you, getting really advanced and getting to a point where you can do real-time, you know, very sophisticated understanding. And uh, yeah, I think if you have a couple thousand and you actually got the thing, I guess now you can use ChatGPT in a nice interface. Onto to applications and business, the first story is about self-driving cars. And in particular, a new incident in San Francisco in which a Waymo robotaxi hit a cyclist. Now, before you worry, this is, relatively speaking, not a huge incident. So what happened was an autonomous Waymo car hit a cyclist, causing minor injuries. The cyclist actually left the scene and this was reported to the police and relevant authorities, uh, I guess, right after. And uh, there's some details about the story. Basically, this was a slightly confusing traffic scenario where there was a four-way stop, there was a truck uh, that kind of moved through its stop sign, Van the Waymo started moving. But there was a cyclist behind the truck that was hidden by the truck. So there wound up being uh, a kind of small collision, although the Waymo did break hard to try and avoid it. So unlike the uh, incident last year with Cruise, that, of course, sparked a huge change in the, um, I guess, fate of that company. In this case, it doesn't seem like a terrible kind of outcome. But I think worth highlighting as an example of something that will inevitably happen as Waymo expands to more and more territories, stuff like this will just happen. So this is, I think, the first really widely reported story of a collision involving a person with Waymo. And it's interesting to see that in this case, it it turned out to be maybe not the worst kind of uh, story for them. Yeah, and you
1: can really see the, you know, trigger happy to call the authorities as they should be, you know, after something like this happens. Uh, but my guess is at a, at the very highest levels, they'll be extremely aware of um, of what happened with Cruz and trying to draw as sharp a contrast as they possibly can. I mean, this is like, a, it's a PR problem at that point. Um, a couple of interesting notes about the, the uh, context of the accident, too. We don't have that much data about it, but it does seem like it was um, pretty, you know, Clear day, broad daylight, it was around 3 p.m. And the intersection apparently is pretty flat. Um, so, you know, not a lot of mitigating factors. It seems like the cyclist might have come out of nowhere. At least that's how a, a human driver might interpret it. Um, but yeah, really, it's obviously really hard to, to decide. This is the classic philosophical quandary. You know, how do we weight an AI induced accident relative to human induced accidents? Um, but yeah, so one, one other thing they do mention that I thought was kind of interesting, I, I wasn't tracking this. So Waymo apparently has tallied just over 7 million driverless miles, which is a little bit more than Cruise, which is about 5 million miles. I didn't realize that they were so close um, in terms of uh, the data that they've collected. So kind of interesting. Apparently, humans cause on average one death about every 100 million miles driven. So you know, if, if we're looking at at these sorts of accidents happening in the low millions of miles, um, it, it you know it, it does raise certain safety questions. So this will obviously improve as more data is collected and all that. But um, it's an interesting little little benchmark.
0: That's right. I think. Behind the scenes, there's been more movement and more kind of conversations on the regulatory front uh, stemming from the cruise accident and just generally some of the disruptions happening in San Francisco traffic due to cruise and Waymo. So this adds to that in in a way where now there's another incident that will be kept in mind and I guess inform some of these conversations. It'll be an interesting year, I think, for self-driving. We are kind of still pretty early on. Waymo is trying to expand to Los Angeles, trying to expand the service area in the Bay Area beyond San Francisco to a much larger swath of it going uh, to include highways and freeways and smaller cities. So it'll be, yeah, kind of, a pretty pivotal year for Waymo potentially. And if if it was a worse accident, that could have been a real uh, change of fate. But uh, it seems like this didn't wind down going down that route.
1: And moving on to our lightning round, we're opening up with Canon plans to disrupt chip making with low cost stamp machines. OK, so uh, we, we do this every once in a while where we do that a bit of background, and we still need that dedicated AI hardware episode. But right now, um, the world's most advanced um, uh, semiconductor lithography machines uh, are extreme UV lithography machines, EUV machines. These are the things that a Dutch company called ASML makes that they sell to chip fabs like um, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company or Samsung or SK Hynix. Um, and then, and then those companies then use those machines to make the chips, the you know the GPU, the power GPUs, and so on and so forth. So these lithography machines are kind of pretty far upstream from the whole chip ecosystem. They are critical and they are super expensive. So ASML, which is by far the leader in the space, each of their machines will cost on the order of like hundred million dollars plus. Like these are massively expensive machines, hugely times for delivery. So. Canon is coming in and saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we can come up with a a machine that uh, is more efficient. So what these traditional EUV machines do is they fire like a crazy uh, high-intensity, high-frequency laser to kind of, well, roughly speaking, etch in features onto the semiconductor chips to etch in those circuits. Uh, what what Canon is doing is they're saying, well, what if we try like kind of a, a stamping strategy instead to try to stamp chip designs onto silicon wafers rather than etching them in using kind of high frequency, uh, a short wavelength light. Um, so this new strategy is pretty controversial. Um, They've been at it for like 15 years, but they seem to be thinking that this is now starting to mature. They think it's ready to kind of coexist with extreme UV lithography machines and compete in the market. Um, I was surprised at this. They say they're actually going to be starting at the 5 nanometer resolution. So the 5 nanometer process... Uh, for context, this is equivalent, or this is the process that led to the NVIDIA H100 GPU. That's the the best GP, eh, almost the best GPU on the market right now, at least from NVIDIA. And um, so they think they can already kind of get down there. They they think they can get all the way down to two nanometers, which is the node size that will probably be at like a year and a half to two years from now. So you know they're ambitious here. The big question anytime you look at these sorts of machines is yield. You might be able to make some of these chips using these technologies, but if most of them are crap, if like, you know, if 50% of your chips end up being crap because your your process is just unreliable, then, well, that means that you're you're going to have to make twice as many chips to produce uh, the, the right number of kind of quality chips. So that's the big question. Right now, it seems like yield is a big challenge for Canon. Um, there are big hints that the yields aren't necessarily great. They, uh, they came out and said in this release, you know, in regard to defect risk, our, I think our technology has largely resolve the issue, which isn't exactly inspiring, uh, but they're they're doing now their first deliveries for uh for trial period. So this is one to watch. Um I'm not super bullish on it, but if it ends up working, this sort of thing, you know, could be the, the type of thing that allows you to make these things for much cheaper. It's apparently like 90% less expensive um to produce at scale, that's their claim, than um, than these ASML machines.
0: And that, of course, would have major downstream impacts on AI, because a lot of the cost for setting up, at least starting to work on a major AI project, is getting access to a lot of chips, right? Getting access to a lot of GPUs, a lot of upfront investment, uh, unless you're trying to get access to chips or GPUs in the cloud. But now that's actually pretty hard. Now it's not easy to get a ton of compute a lot of competition for people trying to get that so if we do get a a breakthrough i guess you could call this uh that could have major impacts in presumably a year a couple years but uh, we'll have to see Next story, also dealing with hardware, US Industry Group calls for multilateral chip export controls to address disadvantage over Korea and other allies. So this is all about how the US, as we have covered quite a bit, has pretty stringent export controls and regulations regarding how chips from the US can wind up in China, and also has prohibitions on US support for advanced fabrication facilities in china so there is this group argues a disadvantage because u.s companies cannot use some of these fabrication options in china verse versus korea japan taiwan israel and so on can and yeah, this is kind of just highlighting that. It has asked the Bureau of Industry and Security to quote, do all that is possible to establish new controls that are better for the US in some way.
1: Yeah, and and I think the this was sort of the the natural consequence, right, of the US coming in and setting up new export controls. First, you usually do it you know, you might do this unilaterally in this way to get it done quickly, and then you know you you kind of bring in the wider uh, community of international stakeholders japan has already kind of uh, set up their own pretty stringent export controls to mirror the us's so you know they they, they list them in the list here I, i'm not so sure that they're like maybe the first one you would list uh, but but they are being cited by this uh, semiconductor industry association that's actually kind of written this this comment to to bis at the department of commerce um, yeah so I think it's something that gets resolved over time but it's it's worth flagging like there this absolutely does you know the export controls uh, make a ton of sense at least in my estimation. I don't like them as you know as much as anyone. Like I think it's it's uh, it sucks, because it does hurt industry. And this is really us seeing how it's hurting industry and how industry expresses that. Um, but we did hear from uh, the Undersecretary for Commerce and Industry Security. Um, this is Alan Estevez. He came out and said, look, basically, we're working on it. We're already in preliminary talks with South Korea uh, to set up a new export control to cover a whole bunch of stuff, including semiconductors, quantum computing, and so on. So this is in train. But in the transient, you know, the U.S. had to move really fast to kind of shut a lot of these loopholes that existed after the previous round of export controls. And this is just, you know, it's the collateral damage that you might expect.
0: And actually, one more story about export controls, and this one is a little bit more exciting, a little bit, you know, you can imagine this being in a movie or something. Uh, the story <laughs> yeah. is that the U.S. blocks shipment of twenty-four NVIDIA AI GPUs to China over concerns about self-driving. Truck company. So, the U.S. Department of Commerce has literally prevented twenty-four A100 GPUs. Not even, you know, some crazy amount. This is a relatively small amount of, like, medium strength GPUs from being shipped to Chinese self-driving truck company Too Simple, and this was actually intended. Uh, to Australia but the concern was that they might wind up in China and apparently this company too simple has been under scrutiny from the US government for years and has been investigated uh, for foreign investment and accusations of espionage so uh, kind of dramatic I guess well, yeah,
1: and, and I, to your point, I, that was exactly why I thought this was so interesting. The, the 24 A100 GPUs, you know, the, the fact that uh, the Department of Commerce is is on it to the point where they're tracking down, you know, you, you can't sneak two dozen A100 GPUs out of the U.S. It's, it's good to see. Uh, so, yeah, the, apparently, you know, there's all kinds of back and forth here. The, um, the argument is being made by Too Simple that, yeah, look, we, we have um, a subsidiary, or a um, yeah, subsidiary in the U.S. that... Is, it, the reason we want to send these out to Australia is just that this subsidiary is kind of shutting down; it won't be able to use them anymore. Which you know, you hear that, you go, okay, yeah, you know, why, why don't you let them ship it? Um, but ultimately, uh, it seems that, according to you know people familiar with the matter, as they say, uh, the CEO personally did want to get the GPUs to China. That's the claim. Um, apparently these orders were not kept in writing, but his, his assistant coordinated with Two Simple's Chinese office to ship the 24A-100s to Australia. So, and apparently the company's lawyers even gave input on the shipment, um, saying it was illegal to send the GPUs to China, but not to Australia. So sort of interesting, uh, it, it does seem at least based on this report that the intent really was to circumvent the export controls. Again, I just, I think it's, it's, it's laudable that, that they're on it to the point of, um, of tracking down those 24 A100 GPUs. It's a, a pretty big achievement for BIS.
0: And one last story in the section, this one also about hardware and GPUs. NVIDIA reportedly selects Intel Foundry services for GPU packaging production and could produce over 300,000 H100 GPUs per month. So that's the story. Uh, packaging is one of the kind of major bottlenecks that we've covered and has been, I suppose, an issue or one of the challenges in scaling up and keeping up with demand. So this is uh, just telling us that it seems like there's movement on that front and NVIDIA could be setting up to produce a lot of these very high power H100 GPUs, which a lot of companies want to get their hands on.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's an unconfirmed report, but just based on the details, it does seem plausible and um, and it, it would be an interesting story. So uh, for context, yeah, TSMC, of course, is, as we've covered many times, this is the the best, most advanced semiconductor foundry on planet Earth. They're the only ones really able to, to do the three nanometer process that gives us the current version of the iPhone, for example, the iPhone chip. Um, they also, though, are leaders in their packaging technology. So once you fabricate a chip, right? You still need to package it together with a bunch of other components and other chips to make the for example the GPU, the processor that that you actually are going to sell. That packaging step is not as specialized as chip fabrication itself. It's not like there's literally just one company that can do this, uh, which is the case for chips at 3 nanometers right now, but it's still you know reasonably close so the latest technique is called chip on wafer substrate or coas so coas you'll hear us talk about that uh, quite a bit especially in the future this packaging step um, is required for the most advanced, some of the most advanced processors that are produced. You need really good chips and they need to be packaged really well. Uh, the packaging process has turned into the bottleneck. Um, uh, sort of in, in mid-2023, that, that started to be the case. But prior to that, um, it, it had been more the chip fabrication stuff. But now chip fabrication no longer the bottleneck, now it's more on the packaging side. So uh, at this point, NVIDIA, which again is is just, yeah, they're trying to churn out as many GPUs as they possibly can. They need all the packaging production they possibly can, and they've already saturated, basically, TSMC. TSMC has no more capacity right now. They will soon. Uh, by the end of 2024, they think they'll double it. But for now, they don't have that capacity. So NVIDIA is now looking to other sources, and Intel is... Keen to compete with TSMC, Um, Gelsinger, the CEO of of Intel right now, is trying to pivot the company in the direction of doing just this. So this is a great way for Intel to position itself to kind of get a little bit of a a taste of the market, start to draw in some, um, yeah, some some uh, opportunity to develop. They have a slightly different. COOS process than TSMCs. So all this is going to have to get tested out and kind of they'll get a shakedown cruise. Um, But this is also super, super consistent with NVIDIA's strategy in the market. Their game plan is to be super, super aggressive, to crowd out everybody else, to overorder if they can, just fill the capacity of everybody in sight uh, on packaging, on chip manufacturing. So they really, really want to go in and get all that Intel capacity that's just opened up. That's good for Intel good for Nvidia and really bad for folks like AMD for example if they are also packaging constrained you know now there's like less room at Intel for an AMD order and that's really how Nvidia has managed to pick up so much steam um, so all of this, uh, again, grain of salt, unconfirmed reports uh, wouldn't be surprising and would be good news for Intel if this went forward. Apparently, the deal is for something like 5000 uh, wafers per month. So anyway, wafers are these, these things that you make the chips on, it would add up to about 300,000 Nvidia H100 chips um, uh, per month. So that's a, that's a hell of a lot. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if this goes through this would be a, an interesting next step for Intel.
0: Clearly, as listeners can tell, (laughs) Jeremy is much more of an expert on this topic than me, so you got all those details. Uh, But as I always like to say, hardware is so important, and we keep going back to NVIDIA and GPUs just because it is at the foundation of trying to get GPT-5 or whatever, right? OpenAI and Sam Altman are all about hardware, a lot because of this. And it seems like also just in terms of future impact, having a potential uh, other source uh, for their production, having a more diversified supply chain for NVIDIA is uh, very meaningful. So this is a pretty significant development if true and if it works out. Moving on to projects and open source, and our first story is Allen Institute for AI launches open and transparent Olmo large language models. So the Allen Institute for AI, or AI2, has been around for quite a while. It was created by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen and has done a lot of stuff in AI over years. And Olmo is their latest, I guess, big initiative. It stands for Open Language Model. And it is billed as truly open source in the sense that they have released the model itself, but they have also released the training code and the data for the training which is in contrast to pretty much anywhere else. You look Lama, Falcon, et cetera. You might get to model, but you usually do not get to code, and you usually do not get the data. And the data here is its own story, really. It's this uh, DOMA data set, which features more than 3, million, uh, 3 trillion tokens, so a new open source data set for training large language models, alongside with this new open language model and overall framework with this code for inference, code for training. They also release training metrics, training logs, so just more than any other open source release to date, pretty much. And uh, they have released almost 7B specifically, so kind of a Small or large language models, you could say. <laughs> Generally, we get like three B, seven B, and seven B is at the smaller level, where it's still kind of GPT, ChatGPT-ish, but usually not capable of advanced reasoning or a lot of stuff you would want it to do. Uh, but still, you know, pretty significant. So, yeah, an exciting day for open source with this release. Yeah, it's funny. You said small, large language models. And I, I couldn't help but go like, oh
1: yeah, 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 that, that is a thing. <laughs> we, we don't have we don't have a word for that. That is absolutely a thing. You're totally right. It's uh yeah, it, it, it's interesting, right? It's it's a continuation of this trend where it seems like people keep going like, "Oh yeah, you think you're the open source guy? Well, like, we'll we'll like open source the code." And then they're like, "Okay, well we'll open source the data set." And then like, we'll open source a picture of me sleeping before I hit the run button on the co-. Anyway, there's like it's just this escalation of how open can we be? And and this is I think maybe where it just ends up, like everything is open. I think one of the really interesting pieces, we saw this um, with Stable LM, uh, Stable LM2, I think it was, back in January, um, where that was the first time I was aware of this idea of a, a company that would release the, the like a checkpoint um, version of the model. So in their case, they released the last training checkpoint um, so that people could basically pick that up and keep developing it. Uh, essentially, the, the idea there was you, know, you, you um, finish your training run, and then you do a little bit of post-production. You do some fine-tuning, some reinforcement learning from human feedback, kind of make the model well-behaved. Um, and it turns out that by adding those steps, you actually make it harder for people to keep the training process going after that. And so in that case, they decided, yeah, to release the last training checkpoint. Here, uh, the Allen Institute is releasing a whole bunch of training checkpoints about 500 for each model um, from every for every like 1,000 steps uh, during the, the training process. So uh, that, that's kind of an interesting additional bit of openness it's all Apache 2.0 license so extremely open source like genuinely um, yeah so thought that was interesting to your point yeah absolutely on the uh, on the data set that's another dimension of it and they're also releasing their Paloma evaluation framework code base. That's another interesting one. We haven't seen that a lot. right? You release the model, and you release the code you used to evaluate the model. From a safety standpoint, like I really like that. If we're going to get the risk that comes from these folks open sourcing more powerful language models, we might as well get them to open source the evaluation framework uh, so, so we know how the model was evaluated and can have the open source community at least pick that apart. Uh, so yeah, really interesting development. And I'm curious if this then puts pressure on Meta you know, to get more open at their end, too.
0: Right. And uh, kind of follows up on a little bit of a trend we've started to see this year of a lot of movement in this smaller, large language model space. We had Phi2. We had a couple other ones we covered in recent weeks. Uh, so at 7b, this is in a category. And I think, you know, if you're thinking through the implications, this is probably most impactful for researchers. Just because you have full access to the training code, to the data, to the checkpoints. So, we are, I I would expect to see some papers coming out looking for interpretability results, for maybe like, you know, just fundamental understanding of how language models train and how their training dynamics involve, things like that. This would go a long way towards enabling that, and uh, is a real boon for the academic community and potentially R and D. But I think probably less impactful on the industry or startup front. And now on to a large, large language model. <laughs> the next story. What's the cutoff, Andre? <laughs> well, I think this next one definitely qualifies as large. Uh, mm. We are talking about Smog Seventy Two B, which is uh, in this. Uh, Article headline is called The New King of Open Source AI. And that is because it is now at the top of the Hugging Face LLM leaderboard, which just combines a bunch of different benchmarks. This was released by startup Abacus AI. And it's really a fine-tuned version of a previously existing model called Qwen 72 b another powerful language model released just a few months ago. So I guess the interesting bit here is this startup took that released model and fine-tuned it, trained it some more. We don't have a paper yet. They said they would work on a paper and can disclose more of the details of how they got there. But this release, it is at the top and is on par, or perhaps even better than GPT 3.5 and Mistral Medium, so yeah, another really good large language model is now open source and available for people to build on.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna ring ring the bell again of or uh, beat the drum, beat the drum again of like uh, at a certain point, I start to wonder uh you know all these language models coming out I, it's less the case for this one because it is it does seem to be field leading but some of these more like kind of you know it does really well compared to the competition at seven billion parameters or something the, these companies that are releasing these models these are not cheap to train and uh it makes me really curious about whether that strategy keeps holding up but one interesting thing to note about this is it is um so it, yeah it, it's sort of built by fine-tuned by abacus ai uh, from a model, yeah, that's right, that was originally um, made by Quen, which is a team at Alibaba. This is itself kind of interesting, right? You have sort of, I think it's the first time I'm aware of, of a prominent Western effort, especially one that was this effective, that built on a base Chinese model. And this has you ask questions about what are the licensing terms for Quen 72 billion? Um, what are some of the data poisoning risks as well, right? I mean, you know, presumably Alibaba can't just train a model that you know, we'll talk about the Tiananmen Square massacre, for example, you know, things like that. Um, so you know how does that interact with this and is Abascus now kind of taking on some of those properties I, I'm really curious to dig into this aspect I haven't but this is something that you always you know have to start asking about 0.1.ai when they released their latest uh, their latest model that famously bound to Chinese kind of uh, the Chinese legal system so if you had an issue with it you'd have to adjudicate in a Chinese court. So all of these things like the open source dimension of this is actually an important sort of like international, A strategic playground now, and uh, anyway, I'm I'm curious to see uh, what what comes out of this this dimension of it with uh, with uh, smog 72 billion.
0: Worth highlighting this leaderboard is looking at various uh, benchmarks: Arc, Hellaswag, MLU. So, as we have said, generally speaking, benchmarks that don't rely on human rankings are. They are indicative of performance, but at the same time, they are not kind of a full story. It sometimes, when you actually use it, you find that it's bad at certain things, good at other things. So, it is leading the pack in these numbers. Doesn't mean that it's necessarily better than GPT three point five if you were to use it, but still a pretty significant outcome. And it's interesting if you look at leaderboard. You know, not just Mark Twenty Two B. All of these uh, things that are at the top are some sort of. work on top of an existing open model. There's like MOMO 72B, LoRa 1.8.7-DPO, dash just people playing around with additional training and improvements on top of what's been out. And yeah, this is showcasing what happens when you open source. You know, people can take what you do, improve upon it, put it out there, someone else improves upon it, and this is where we get to. And onto the lightning round. And we start, actually, with the announcement of Quen 1.5. So we just covered how the initial Quen was the basis for this uh, SMOG-72B. And it just so happened that Quen 1.5 was announced, again, with various sizes, with up to 72 billion uh, and as small as uh, half a billion parameter models. The update has a variety of stuff. It has quantized models, which are generally cheaper to run and generally better. They have a pretty large context length, 32,000 inputs. Whereas looking back a while ago, it used to be like two, 4,000 was the standard. And uh, they're really competitive, especially the small ones are competitive at the small, large language model field. So another, I guess, cool update and uh, interesting to see the Quan team continuing to expand and uh, put stuff out there.
1: Yeah, I think two really interesting notes. Uh, at my end, I think. Here. So first off, so this update includes quantized models. So th- when you quantize a model, basically, you know, you oh, let's say you could train the original model in where each of the weights in the model has like you know sixteen digits of floating point precision. Now you don't necessarily need that much resolution, essentially, in your numbers. So you can quantize that, basically reduce the resolution with which the weights are uh, described in the model. You usually lose some performance because of that, but it makes the model a lot smaller, so you can pack it on smaller edge devices, so it, it runs faster and cheaper and so on. So they're including a um, 4-bit integer quantization and 8-bit integer quantization. Uh, that's, that's sort of interesting in and of itself. Um, that's a trend we've seen more and more as well. And the second piece is that this uses, uh, so, so they, they do an additional bit of um, uh, fine tuning of the model on human feedback. And you know, if, if you're a longtime listener to the show, you're familiar with the idea of reinforcement learning from human feedback. That was, of course, the way GPT-4 was trained, the way ChatGPT was trained when it was first launched. Um, but now, there, uh, folks are kind of moving on to the thing called DPO, D- Direct Policy Optimization, um, as well as Proximal Policy Optimization (PPO). Uh, these are two strategies that are a lot more efficient. We actually, I don't think, I don't remember if we've explicitly talked about DPO and its implications on. Uh, on this environment, we will later. Uh, this is maybe something to punt, but uh, but it is an important uh, upgrade on top of reinforcement learning from human feedback, and it's noteworthy that it's now act- actively being used by you know Chinese companies uh, in their own internal efforts.
0: One last note uh, for me, and this one I guess worth highlighting, and I didn't mention this initially: the high end, the largest version, seventy-two B, AlphaQuant one point five. Uh, destroys Llama2 70b and is even better than Mistral 8x 7b across various benchmarks. So this could be seemingly kind of the leading edge in terms of what's been open sourced. And similar looks like to smog in terms of some of the numbers on the benchmarks. Uh, smog 72b so in a way it's interesting like smog 72b quen 1.5 72b are all movements that smash the previous records and uh yeah i guess we're we're just gonna keep seeing this until we saturate the ability to improve via further fine tuning or further tricks and whatever so an exciting week for open source seriously
1: up next, we have Hugging Face launches open source AI assistant maker to rival OpenAI's custom GPTs. So here we have basically Hugging Face saying anything you can do, I can do better. OpenAI goes and launches the you know the GPT store, and Hugging Face is saying, hey, you know what? We're going to kind of do the same thing, except our stuff is going to be free. It's going to be all based on open source uh, open source models. It's it's sort of relative to OpenAI's custom GPT builder, which costs tr- twenty five bucks a month, right? So it, it, decent savings. Um, yeah, you can build a new personal hugging face chat assistant as they advertise in two clicks. Uh, so you give it a, a name, an avatar description, um, and you can choose any available open source LLM. So you think here Llama two, think Mistral or, or other things like that. Um, you can have a custom system message like OpenAI's system prompt. At least I assume that that's uh, that's the idea here, and um, as well as different you know prompts to kind of start uh, the the, uh, the text generation process. So I think it's really interesting. Um, it's uh, it, it definitely is derivative. It's clear, like the the page itself looks a lot like the GPT store page, um, as they point out in the article, even down to its visual style. Uh, they have custom assistants that are displayed like custom GPTs in their own rectangular baseball card style boxes with circular logos inside. And this is true. Uh, you know, I clicked on the article uh, and, and and sort of like or clicked on the um, uh, sort of the through link, and you can see. Uh, yeah, you can see that it very much looks like the GPT store. Uh, so definitely recycling. Uh, you know, why why invent when you can re- recycle? But a, a cool and interesting development for sure.
0: Right, not necessarily like competitive in terms of usefulness. These yeah. will not have some of the nice, fancy features you might get from ChatGPT, like retrieval augmented generation, or web search uh, stuff like that. So this is really just a way to build and play around on top of the open big models like Mistral and Llama 2. Although, you know, there as we've seen with the last previous stories, new open models come out all the time. So it could yeah. be that in a month, there's an extra cool model and someone can just spin up or upgrade their chatbot. So uh, an interesting little project by Hugging Face, I think, and uh, we'll see if this gets some traction or not. And one last story in this section. This one is about MGIE, a revolutionary AI model for instruction-based image editing. That's from the headline. And this is uh, standing for MLLM, uh, Multimodal Language Model Guided Image Editing. And it is a tool that was developed by Apple in collaboration with researchers from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and it allows people to edit images with text, essentially, with uh, allowing people to just say, you know, make my image darker or have uh, higher contrast, etc. And it goes ahead and does that for you using these multimodal language models. So that's pretty much the story. I think it's interesting to see Apple getting into the open source Mm -hmm. game a little bit. Typically, they have not been in that space. But this is an open source AI model that others can build upon.
1: Up next, we're in our research and advancement section, and we're going to open with a theoretical paper. I know everybody gets excited when they hear theoretical paper. This one's called Learning Universal Predictors, and it is from Google DeepMind. It's it's really interesting. It is theoretical. Um, so let me just set the scene a little bit. There is a process, a predictive process, called Solomonoff Induction. Okay, this is uh, basically the most powerful universal predictor that we have. Like, if you get a set of data, of data that you observe in the world, this is the most powerful theoretical process that we have for figuring out what function is generating that data. Right, so you get a bunch of observations in the world and, and you want to know like well, you know what is the thing that's causing all this to happen? What is the function that generates this data? You can think of that, I mean, that's kind of what physicists do, right? When they look out in the world and they make a bunch of observations and they're like, what's the law of physics that, that produces that this? Right? It's the same thing that we do when we train AI models to, for example, uh, learn to do text generation. Right? They read all the text on the internet, and what they're trying to do is figuring out what is the function that produced that text. In a very deep sense, they're kind of asking, what is the universe that produced this text? So it, there's a very deep connection here with the idea of AGI, because in a sense, that's what AGI is all about. Given a set of images, how can we find a function that generates those images? Right? If we can, then we can generate those images. And so, um, and again, you know, to really make the point on AGI here, you know, if you get a set of observations about the physical universe, How can you find out the function that generates those observations? How can you essentially decode the laws of physics that govern the universe themselves? So, this is really like the idea of of, uh, Solomonoff induction is arguably, I mean, if you could make a Solomonoff induction machine, you would have an AGI, right? An efficient one, if, if it was actually scalable. So, now the big question they're trying to answer in this paper is okay, can we show that transformers can actually approximate Solomonoff induction? If we give them enough data, enough computing power, um, if you could show that, then you would have shown in principle that they really could allow us to get to AGI. And Solomonoff induction itself involves a couple of different things. So there are three main ingredients. Uh, the first is what it tries to do is kind of go, OK, I've got this data. What are all of the possible functions that could conceivably account for this data? Right. What are all of the possible, I don't know, theories of physics that could explain what I'm seeing or for something more mundane. Right. If we're trying to explain like the NASA moon landing, what are all the possible hypotheses that could explain it? Right. One is that NASA spent a bunch of money to land a rocket on the moon. Right? The other is uh, there's a conspiracy theory or a million different conspiracy theories. Right. So essentially, the, this process of Solomonoff induction must consider all of the possible laws of physics, all the possible explanations. That is a massively computationally expensive task. Um, in addition to that, it has to assign a probability or like a weighting factor to each of these possibilities. And that'll depend on how, roughly speaking, how complex they are from an information theoretic perspective. So the idea here is, uh, the more bits you need to describe a hypothesis, the less you're going to weight, it, uh, weight that, that hypothesis. And this is just like the philosophical principle of Occam's razor. Right? If you have a super complicated explanation for something relatively simple, that's probably unlikely to be true. Right? And this is actually the reason why a lot of conspiracy theories are unlikely to be true, because they require you know, a whole s- stack of things to, to be true at the same time. It's a very complex hypothesis, whereas often the reality is a lot simpler. Not always the case. But often reality is a lot simpler, um, and then the last piece is Solomonoff induction relies on uh, Bayes theorem. So basically, updates based on Bayes theorem, which is the standard way that you, you know, consider new evidence from a mathematical perspective to update your hypotheses. Okay, so. Um, This is hugely impractical. It needs a ton of computation to execute as is. So the core question is, can neural networks approximate this process? And here, I'm going to very uh, coarsely summarize this paper and say that the answer is maybe. (laughs) It seems like large uh, language models, transformers, also LSTMs, which uh, like long short-term memory networks, these are from the pre-transformer days, um, they showed in some sort of carefully designed scenarios Uh, optimal performance that's aligned with being able to support this kind of Salmonov induction. So this is a piece of evidence in favor of the generality, the general purpose capacity of not just transformers, but LSTMs and other kinds of neural networks as well. So it's, a, it's got a data point You know, when we have these conversations about whether uh, you know, current transformers are enough to get to AGI. From a strictly theoretical standpoint, this is a piece of evidence in favor of that. There are all kinds of practical questions about you know, how much in practice does it take to get here. Um, but uh, anyway, sort of an, an interesting data point to put on everybody's radar as we try to think about what the future of AI looks like in the next couple of years.
0: Right. As you said, a very theoretical kind of mathy paper. This is from DeepMind. There are some kind of results or implications you might take away. They do compare LSTM and RNNs with transformers and transformers, as we've been seeing for years now, generally seem to do quite well and, and in some cases better. So, yeah, hard to know exactly what to take away from this unless you're thinking about the deep theoretical questions of machine learning and AI and neural nets, but a very kind of cool paper if you're into that sort of thing, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there is you know one piece is they do study the scaling properties of these systems through the lens of Solomonoff induction, and, and they do find that as you scale... Um, the capacity to do this, to to carry out tasks aligned with Solomonoff induction, goes up. So it it does provide, to some degree, an almost causal mechanism that explains why these systems get more general over time. They start to look more and more like Solomonoff induction machines. That's you know, to some degree, <laughs> a little bit more uh, more practical, but certainly not uh, not fully yet. You're right.
0: And on to our second main research paper. And this one is a little bit more on the practical empirical side, although it does kind of still study uh, the properties of neural nets rather than try and get some good results or f- something like that. The paper is Can Mamba Learn How to Learn? A Comparative Study on In Context Learning Task. So, as we've been covering for a few months now, Mamba has been this new type of neural net that is different from the most popular kind, right? The default these days is transformers. And in the past maybe half year, roughly, people have started looking at these state space machines that have some better properties in terms of how expensive they are to run and how they potentially can be as good as transformers while being less expensive. So, There has been some initial work in this front, including Mamba, which is kind of the best-to-date example of a state-state machine, or at least it was a few months ago. And now people are starting to really explore their properties. And this is an example of that, where this paper asks, can uh, these kinds of models do in-context learning, where in-context learning is basically just like given an explanation of what what you want the model to do, In the input or the context, can it then do that without being explicitly trained to do so? So in context learning, super important. This is like the reason that large language models and transformers are mind-blowing, is that without explicitly training them to do stuff, they just kind of can do it when you tell them to. And the basic answer of this paper to this question, can Mamba learn how to learn? is it can do in context learning, it does learn it. It is worse in some kinds of things than transformers and better in some other kinds of things. And this is not surprising. There's some other paper we're not gonna, gonna go into that shows that you know if you wanna do copy paste from the input, for instance, transformers are better, which is makes sense, roughly speaking. Anyway. This paper has some results on that front. It also shows that you can combine a transformer and Mamba architecture to get the best of both worlds, where it is able to do the best on every kind of task of of these like 12 different example uh, in context learning tasks that I've looked into. So to me, pretty exciting to see more research into the properties of Mamba and more yeah, more variations of neural net models that might be kind of the next evolution of what we build on.
1: Yeah, it really also makes me wonder about the prospect of like a mixture of experts type of architecture, you know, f- featuring uh featuring like Mamba and Transformers, you know, I wonder how that would how that would learn to optimize and, and whether you could actually squeeze more juice out of the lemon in that sense. Um, the same way that they try in this paper, kind of combining them together for your end-to-end training. Um kind of yeah kind of cool and we'll see what what mamba does next
0: yeah i i will say mamba former not the best name for a model i i really hope (laughs) we won't have to keep saying mamba former all the time in the future are you hoping that it will fail just for that reason i mean i'm maybe a little (laughs) bit you know i just think we need a catchier title for our new one that's Uh, in mamba former that's all i'm saying transformer (laughs) is just more fun to say but anyway yeah it's a cool cool paper on the lightning round, and we're going to go quick with a couple more research stories. The first one is Music RL aligning music generation to human preferences, and that's pretty much what it is. So we've touched on human alignment quite a bit. That's when you take a language model that has just been trained to do autocomplete, and you align it to do what humans actually want it to do, not just autocomplete, but probably like you know, actually solve whatever task I gave you to solve. Uh, and don't give me conspiracy theory answers, even if that's what's most likely in your training data. Well, uh, I just kind of misspoke a little bit. Alignment is a general concept in AI, just getting models to do what you want them to do. And so this paper looks into how we can align music generation models. So going from just training and out of completion for music, uh, text to music in this case, they show you can actually fine tune similarly to what you do with large language models on the human preferences of music, and you get something that's better.
1: And next, we have FP6LLM, efficiently serving large language models through FP6 centric algorithm system co design. Boy, that's hard to say. Um, okay, so. Floating point, FP, that's what it stands for. Uh, It's a hardware story, again. So one of the things to recognize about um, current AI training runs is that they are bottlenecked by a thing called the memory wall. Basically, there's this this challenge where um, if you're going to train the model, you need to keep re-uploading the weights of the model uh, during inference. And uh, sorry, this is sorry. This is just um, the inference process. It happens also during training because training involves inference, um, but it also involves backpropagation. Anyway, during inference, your um, your speed of inference is mainly limited by the time that your GPU needs to read uh, the model weights to actually like pull them up and start to work with them. And so the more uh, floating point digits the more floating point precision you use to represent the weights in your model the more time that process will take it and the more memory also your model will take up in your Gpu so for context gpt3 is like a 300 gigabyte model right it's got a, a ton of it takes up a lot of a lot of space um an Nvidia a100 or h100 Gpu has only 80 um bg of memory so it's like uh, 80 gigabytes of memory, so essentially you can't fit GPT-3 onto a single chip. And so, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of quantize, if we could reduce the resolution of these uh, of these um, uh, numbers? So recent studies have shown that the optimal um, amount of compression, like how many digits we actually allow, or how many bits we use to represent these numbers, the optimal number is often six bits. So there's eight, four bit quantization. There's eight bit quantization. Those are very kind of commonly used, and we've actually talked earlier today about a four bit integer quantization, eight bit integer quantization, in the context of an open source model that was just released. But the middle ground of six bits actually seems like it's a really good trade off between the cost of inference and the quality of the model. Um, and there is no efficient system. Uh, the system support for six-bit matrix multiplication on modern GPUs. And so, what this paper is doing is they're coming up with the first like full-stack GPU system design scheme that has support for six-bit, uh, five-bit, and three-bit as well integer uh, or sorry uh, quantization. So essentially, they're allowing us to kind of take advantage of that sweet, sweet middle ground. And yet, uh, they have some results. They they basically accelerate inference on Llama two, the seventy billion. A parameter version by anywhere from like 1.7 to 2.7x relative to baseline. So this really is a a pretty big lift. It seems like a niche thing, like why should we care about 6-bit representations of these models uh, and and efficient systems that allow us to to run them that way? Uh, But it turns out that 6-bit, hey, it's actually like it's a sweet spot between 4 and 8 bits. And if you do it right, you can get significant speed up. So another interesting story is to how the hardware relates to uh, the efficiency of the models when they run on uh, these systems.
0: Well, I think that was a pretty good summary, so I don't need to expand on that. Next story is Agent Board, an analytical evaluation board of multi-turn LLM agents. This is a new benchmark and open source evaluation framework uh, tailored to evaluating llm agents so not just large language models that output text and uh, i don't know do nlp tasks but actual agents that require multiple steps to offer some task completion and so yeah this is a more kind of advanced way to evaluate LLMs specifically if you want to look at them as agents.
1: Yeah, and one of the, the big challenges with this sort of thing is usually when you evaluate agents, you kind of have a success criterion, which is like they either successfully completed the whole task that you're testing them for, or they failed. Right. And the challenge with that sort of arrangement is often the tasks that you're evaluating for have many steps. That's kind of the point of an agent, right? They take a complex instruction, they break it down into substeps, and they farm each of those substeps out to a different instance of themselves or a different language model. Now, the, the challenge is this gives you a really low resolution picture of what's going on here. Right? If one agent gets 90% of the way through a task. And just fails at the very end, and another just fails, like falls flat on its face out the gate. You're actually not measuring the difference between them. And so what they're doing here is taking a, a bunch of different tasks. They have nine unique tasks and over a thousand example environments where they can test these these agents. And in each case. They have a, a sort of a bunch of substeps annotated manually, by the way, um, for each of these uh, each of these tests that allow you to kind of have a, a progress rate metric, not just that measures like oh did they succeed or did they fail overall, but uh, but at the, the the higher level of granularity, what are the steps that they actually achieved? And this metric apparently reveals significant progress that, that otherwise you know you might have missed. So when you look at their success rates, you can actually see like oh interesting you know it. On the surface, it looks like these models are doing comparably uh, because they're both getting really low overall success rates. But like one of them is getting 70% of the way through task, and the other is just 20% or something. So this gives us a high-resolution picture of what's going on. Um, they also make a, a bunch of different, draw some conclusions about which models are best. No surprise here, GPT-4, powers, Agents best, Um, but the next kind of leading model among open source systems is, uh, I believe, it's a Chinese model called DeepSeek. So that's kind of another interesting note, and that will have changed, of course, in the week or two since the paper came out, because we've had a bunch more open source LLMs. But anyway, uh, kind of interesting uh, new strategy for measuring progress uh, in uh, in agent LLMs.
0: Yes, and I think indicative of uh, one of the major kind of open problems or research directions, research and development directions throughout the field of getting from models to agents. And you know, there's examples like the ARC browser, for instance. So that's an instance where you want your LLM to sort of be an agent to some extent. So uh, yeah, it's indicative of interest in that direction to get a whole benchmark and, and a fancy way to measure things to be able to tell if we're making progress. And one last paper for the section, Specialized Language Models with Cheap Inference from Limited Domain Data. This one coming from Apple, where they show that you can customize a large language model, essentially specialize it to a particular task, to make it cheaper to run. So that's the high level summary they talk about the specialization budget, the training on a different domain that is a little more specific rather than general and things like reducing the inference budget so given this more specific target task that you want to achieve they show that how you know a, a certain way of being able to do that Okay, on to policy and safety, starting out with EU's AI Act passes last big hurdle on the way to adoption. So Yay. if you've been listening, that just from the title might be kind of a big deal. The UI Act has been in the works for years and is a really, really large regulatory effort that EU has been putting together for quite a while. And for the last few months, there's been a bit of uh, issues with it in terms of what to do with LMS and open source. There was some back and forth, some problems. But it uh, kind of got resolved, uh, I think, a month ago or a couple months ago. And now this is reporting that the last major hurdle has been cleared for it to be voted on. And what that last hurdle is, is actually finalizing the proposal so the final text of the uai act has been approved in a vote the act itself hasn't been approved it 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 will need to still be voted on by all these eu member states and so on but the text itself has been and that has been sort of what has been the effort for quite a while now for the last few months and even before that for a while just agreeing on what the proposal is so with that having been done it seems like the way is clear for voting to happen and presumably it will be approved so it's kind of like a matter of not too much time until the U-Act is... Done with and and actually becomes law, which is. And we can very finally stop talking
1: about it on the podcast.
0: <laughs> I know. Why, why is this taking so long? But God,
1: this, this story arc. Yeah.
0: Yes. So it's, yeah, quite a, an important deal. This is, as we've said before, kind of one of the biggest regulatory efforts worldwide in terms of doing a lot of stuff. It, at a high level, establishes different risk categories for different applications of AI. And uh, creates different requirements for companies and developers of AI to um, follow depending on the risk of said uh, application.
1: Yeah, one of the really kind of controversial things that kept everybody up to like late hours during the negotiation process towards the end, as you might recall, is uh, the idea of foundation models and how general purpose models were going to be dealt with, if at all, by the AI Act. It turns out that they now the Act includes a provision uh, specifically for those kinds of systems, and so I guess that's that's what's being adopted or, or at least approved to the next stage um, at this point. So kind of a, a bit of a win for the kind of Max Tegmark. Uh, I think it was like Joshua Bengio, Stuart Russell crew, Jeff Hinton crew, who are pushing for the inclusion of foundation models in the regulation, because I believe it is currently in there.
0: Now, as with any one of these laws, right, big regulation efforts, even once it's passed, there's going to be a phased entry into uh, actually being enforced. So for instance, for these foundation models, general purpose AI, those rules won't apply until 2025. So the actual impacts of the EU AI Act will sort of start to gradually come about once it does become law. But yeah, I, I think finally the saga of the EU AI Act being put together is done.
1: And up next, we have building an early warning system for LLM-aided biological threat creation. This is actually a blog post out of OpenAI. And the question they're trying to answer is, do large language models like GPT-4 meaningfully increase the uh, extent to which people can create or access or develop biological threats? Right. So this is um, a really important pol- uh, policy issue currently the, the White House's executive order that came out a couple months ago uh, explicitly has a carve-out for um, biological threats generated by AI systems. There's a reporting requirement if you're you know, training a, a model on biological sequence data with like 10 to the 23 flops or less or something. Um, basically, they're, they're really concerned about this, this possibility, this use case um, for language models as well. So that's what they're, they're trying to, to test here. This, by the way... Uh, is on the heels of another uh, piece of research that was put out by the RAND Corporation. If you don't know the RAND Corporation, they're actually really important in policy circles. Um, They are a a, a company that partners a lot with the US government. They're actually leading the implementation of a lot of the White House executive order stuff on AI uh, model evaluations. And they concluded that LLMs do not increase information access that's relevant to biological threat creation at this time. But, and this is a big but, They did not have access to the research-only version of GPT-4 when they did their study. They had access to the version of GPT-4 that you and I can access, the version that will say no if you ask to get help designing a bioweapon. And so um, what OpenAI is doing here is they're basically, I won't get into the details of the study too much, but they created two cohorts. One was a bunch of PhDs who really knew their biology. The other was undergrads who kind of knew their biology. To the PhDs, they gave access, uh, they gave uh, the PhDs rather access to the research only version of GPT 4, the full kind of the whole enchilada. And then the the undergrads uh, were not given access to that one. What they found, and this is really interesting, um, they divide the process of creating a bio thread into about f- f- five different stages. And in, at each of those stages, they try to measure like, does access to GPT-4 give this cohort um, a leg up compared to people who can only access Google or like the internet, right? Um, And for each of these stages, so there's like the initial ideation stage all the way down to the execution stage. And what they find is really the issue is they don't have enough data. They had only 50 students or 50 people in each cohort. And they find that uh, they're not. They don't get statistically significant results. They do see an uptick in effectiveness um, at making the biological threat, but they don't see a, a statistically significant uptick at any one of those individual five stages that they test. But if you zoom out and look at the process as a whole, their results are statistically significant. They do see what appears to be an uplift in what they call total accuracy, uh, the, the overall ability to generate one of these threats, and so. What's interesting here is that this result is meaningfully different from what we saw from the Rand Corporation's previous result. We actually do see an increase. The increase, by the way, measured on a scale of like 1 to 10, is a factor of about one point, for the PhDs at least. So they find that they can take a PhD from a 7 out of 10 dangerous to an 8 out of 10 dangerous with this approach. I think this is really interesting for two reasons. The first is it suggests that we're not constructing a serious auditing process if we don't give auditors access to the full research-only base model, right? The, the Rand report, the Rand Corporation, came up with a completely different and much less concerning conclusion because they did not have access—the level of access that would have been needed to to do this properly—if uh, OpenAI's results here are correct. So that's one piece of data I think for policymakers to be tracking. Like, yes, it does really matter. You do need to give your auditors a lot of access to some sensitive company IP. The second piece is, you know, when you think about the history of language models and capabilities that have emerged, GPT two was like barely able to do language translation. Like it would kind of like, you know, you'd be like, oh yeah, I I can see that's a French word for whatever. You know, like it would give you a little bit of stuff, but it was not really good. GPT three. With a little bit more scale, in other words, a little bit more progress, all of a sudden, boom, this thing could actually usefully do language translation. When it comes to scaling, you tend to find a little tiny hint, if you're lucky, of a capability that emerges, a barely noticeable inkling of it. And quite often, at the next level of scale, boom, you hit something reasonably close, in some cases, to human-level capability. And so when you start to see just like a little bit, like we have our first hint here, our first shot across the bow. This is a statistically significant result, at least at the overall uh, total accuracy level. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if GPT-5 shows, the research-only version at least, shows a marked increase here. And I think that this now puts us on a scaling trajectory to- to plausibly, plausibly, it's not guaranteed, but plausibly introduce the the very kind of bio risk that the White House executive order was uh, was concerned with. So I think it's a really interesting data point. Kudos to OpenAI for putting together this study, and uh, and it does invite us to think about you know how we audit these systems, the level of access we need to give to auditors as they do it.
0: They do say that this is considered a starting point for continued research and community deliberation, and this is done. As part of their preparedness framework that we covered, I think about a month ago, where they highlight basically, as you say, like being prepared (laughs) for the possibility that as you scale and improve these models, different risks like, for instance, biological threat creation arise. Uh, So yeah, it seems, uh, as you said, very... Notable that OpenAI is continuing to push in this direction in a pretty significant way. I mean, if you look through this, this is a big research study on this particular topic, and I'm sure they have other initiatives related on other vectors like cybersecurity and not just uh, biological uh, threats. So, uh, interesting new insights here and kind of makes me feel a little more, I, I don't know, about generally. For people who are worried about AI safety and scaling and so on. But I feel like you know, the fact that OpenAI is investing in such a level of preparation and understanding of what might happen is definitely a good sign in general. Out of the lightning round, first up, FCC votes to ban scam robocalls that use AI-generated voices. And that is the story. As we covered, I think last week, there was a robocall with President Biden. Talking about the elections, and so this is basically following up swiftly on that. It is now outlawed to have robocalls that use AI generated voices.
1: You can't do anything for fun these days.
0: I know, I know. What? How restrictive! <laughs> we can't even have scam robocalls anymore. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know probably good news for all of us because I'm sure there would be a flurry of these sorts of things happening if there's no kind of restrictions in place.
1: Well, next we have Biden administration names a director of the new AI Safety Institute, which by the way, there's an AI Safety Institute consortium that was recently announced as well. And I am proud to say that Gladstone AI is now a member. Um, uh, Anyway, I guess not not new news now, but uh, still. Um, so yeah, the Biden administration has appointed uh, Elizabeth Kelly, who is a top White House aide, as uh, the new director of this AI Safety Institute. This is a follow-on to the executive order. Um, it's based at NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. NIST is charged in the executive order with like doing a whole bunch of stuff around AI model audits and evaluations, testing and evaluation. Um, so she had formerly been an Economic policy advisor Joe Biden, and she was actually really important in drafting the executive order that established, uh, well, the executive order, I should just say, it's the one that established the institute. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting. She's got a big, a big uh, set of shoes to fill here, and um, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind, by the way, you know, this executive order that established uh, the AI Safety Institute, um, this. Is probably going to be uh, stricken. Like the EO is probably going to be uh, ripped out if um, uh, if uh, Donald Trump is elected in the next electoral cycle. So I'm curious what ends up happening to the, some of these institutions after they're set up. I feel like I should know the answer, um, but, uh, but but yeah, it's it's going to be one of those interesting kind of political questions as to what what comes next. And um, uh, I'm also sorry, I sidetrack, but. Uh, I've, I've heard, uh, I think Trump makes some noises about how he's concerned about, about AI um, and sort of considers uh, some of the, the risk, the threat models uh, pretty seriously. So uh, that's sort of interesting, and encouraging, if, uh, if only because it means that, you know, we, we at least have some degree of attention on this uh, issue, no matter who wins in the next election cycle.
0: Alrighty, next story. OpenAI's GPT-4 finally meets its match. Scott's Gaelic smashes safety guardrails. That is a somewhat confusing headline for the story. And what it means is that you can get around the safety guardrails that prevent GPT-4 from outputting, let's say, harmful things like misinformation or, I don't know, scam email templates or something like that, you can get around those by translating prompts into uncommon languages like Zulu, Scots Gaelic, or Hmong. That's the research result here from Brown University and is yeah another of these prompt hack attacks, as they're called, that uh, has been uncovered.
1: I'm surprised at how well it worked, and I'm also surprised that this is the first time we're hearing about a, like an academic study on this. But uh, apparently, they were able to bypass safety guardrails about, get this, 79% of the time using these languages. Um, so it's uh, comparable to other jailbreaking met- methods, but those methods tend to be like way more complex, way more technical, and harder to pull off. So the, the, the fact that you just pivot to a different language and make your request... Is um, that's something? I mean, again, you know, for I should mention too, the comparable, right? If you ask those same prompts in English, it turns out they get blocked ninety-nine percent of the time. So this genuinely is a huge, huge delta. You're going from you know one percent success rate to seventy-nine percent just by changing your language to to Zulu or Scots Gaelic and so on. So pretty cool.
0: And on to synthetic media and art, our last section with a few stories. First one is AI poisoning tool Nightshade receives 250,000 downloads in five days. This Nightshade is a free downloadable tool created by researchers at the University of Chicago, which is designed to be used by artists to disrupt AI model scraping and training on their artwork without consent. So the idea of poisoning here is that when you upload your images that you've created, you can run it through Nightshade, and it would mess with the image a little bit, or potentially a lot uh, in some cases, to make it so if you were to use it in your training data, that would be bad for the resulting model. And so the amount of downloads, uh, 250,000 in five days, is really indicative that. There is still a lot of resentment, and you know, a very concerted effort by artists to fight back against AI, and in particular like this free use argument that any image online can be scraped to be used for training. It seems like a lot of people are very much opposed to that, and this is one way to express that.
1: Yeah, and, and the same team apparently had earlier made another tool called Glaze, which works to prevent AI models from learning an artist's signature style by subtly altering pixels so they appear to be something else. Um, so basically, you know, you try, try to make it harder to latch on to the style that, uh, that an artist is using. That one received 2.2 million downloads since its April release. So this is also very, very popular. And what they're now working on is a tool to combine that, the kind of more defensive strategy that Glaze uses to try to make it harder for an AI to catch on to your style with uh, with Nightshade, which uh, is maybe more offensive since it's a poisoning strategy. Um, and they're also saying that they're going to be open sourcing a version of Nightshade uh, pretty soon too, or at least they anticipate doing that. Um, you know, I thought this was interesting, Venture Beat, which is where this article is from, they said in the article they actually use some of these tools uh, to create article imagery and uh, some other content. So kind of interesting uh, metagame there.
0: Next up, labeling AI-generated images on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. This is an announcement from Meta. There is going to be an imagined with AI label on any photorealistic images created with any of the Meta AI features. And now you can have image generation in various places on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Uh, These are visible markers, but there will also be invisible watermarks. And metadata embedded within the image files, so that you know presumably people can try and delete the visible markers that are generated, but there are still going to be these invisible watermarks for software tools to be able to try and detect, and uh, also the metadata. That if you just read the file, you will be able to tell that's say, AI yeah, generated. But Andre,
1: isn't all of Facebook's data metadata? <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Oh, oh, anyway, uh, Facebook is is also adding apparently a feature where, um, so so they're going to actually allow users to disclose when they share AI generated uh, material. And I think this is actually kind of interesting, um, not because I would expect it necessarily to. You know, solve any problem associated with real-time sharings the issues is, you know you share something and then it goes viral and then you know you issue a cor- correction later or whatever but so first off this is is interesting in the long run because it gives meta access to a data set of um, of tagged images that are known to be AI generated so probably allows them to do a little bit more um, more effective detection the second piece is uh, they may not be able to catch you in time. But if there's the threat that, hey, we're collecting this data set, we're getting better and better at identifying those images, we may, in retrospect, be able to determine that you shared something false. And if that happens, you, know, you at least have the threat of future sanction. Impl- implicitly imposed on you uh, by this process probably not going to be enough to like stop bot accounts and stuff like that but hey, you know it's a, it's a decent strategy uh, given where facebook is at what their exposure is to this risk which you know is very very high
0: the invisible watermarks they also point out in this post that they are collaborating on the standards that are used across the industry and one of them is c2pa the content provenance and authenticity Standard. So it looks like more than likely it, it, it feels like industry as a whole is kind of converging on the use of invisible watermarks, metadata, all this sort of stuff. And this blog post from Meta is indicative of that happening. And in fact, in the lightning round, our very next story is OpenAI is adding new watermarks to DALI 3. And it is pretty much that same story. They're adding these C2PA, Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, watermarks in images generated on uh, OpenAI's website. And we'll be starting, I think, this next week. So yeah, it's kind of exactly that same thing that uh, we just covered with Meta, and I believe this is already also being done by Adobe and Microsoft, or at least they're also in the C2PA coalition. So yeah, there's uh, now a standard that probably, I imagine, in the near future, if you look at an image on Reddit or Twitter or something, Potentially, it will be looking for these watermarks and actually notify you that this is AI generated based on the existence of the watermark or some metadata that is now becoming the industry standard.
1: Yeah, and, and worth noting, it's also not super a coincidence. Uh, that this is all happening right now, all of a sudden. Um, the executive order does require... Uh, some measure of investigation, like looking into these sorts of solutions, if I recall. So, um, you know, these are companies that are, are doing the right thing here and trying to get ahead of uh, of any you know exposure they may have to that process. So, I, I think it, you know, not surprising to see Meta, OpenAI, and all these companies following suit.
0: And on to our very last story. This one is not too significant, but it is a follow up on some previous stories. It is that the AI George. Carlin comedy special that caused some controversy, and later we covered, I think last week, there was a thing in Iceland that was kind of similar. Well, that AI comedy special was actually human-written. Following the lawsuit, uh, the person behind it went out to say that despite claiming it was AI-written, it was actually human-written. Um, and that's a first that, yeah interesting <laughs> development uh, and yeah it's kind of funny like people passing on things as being by AI because of a novelty then turning out that uh, maybe that wasn't AI was maybe used partially but there was a lot of human involvement and massaging it to make it what it was and that was presumably uh, kind of a case here so yeah, no, no huge consequence, but I think worth just mentioning for people who've been listening and following the story that now there's a new development in it.
1: Yeah, the biggest take home for me was that uh, the special's title is George Carlin colon I'm glad I'm dead, which like, you know, thanks to generative AI for I guess giving us comedy specials with those titles now. That's a that's a new genre. Um, I, I thought that was pretty good. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious to see what. Uh, what actual AI, I guess, can do with George Carlin's stuff in the future. But uh, we'll have to wait to see what the copyright rules are for that too.
0: And with that, we are done with this latest episode of Last Week in AI. Once again, you can go to lastweekin.ai for the text newsletter that covers even more AI news if somehow this is not enough. And you can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai with any suggestions for the podcast or the newsletter. And you can also email hello at gladstone.ai to uh i guess ask Jeremy on a job or just uh <laughs> chat you know whatever you feel like we would appreciate it if you review the show if you share it if you make us more famous and reputed and so oh, yeah. on you know well that sounds cool man. yeah that's uh always <laughs> nice but know, yeah, no pressure really what we care about is that people actually get a benefit from us recording this yeah. so please keep tuning in